Midtown Detroit studios of WDET. This is Detroit Today. Lynching has finally become a federal hate crime in the United States after more than a century of failed attempts. We'll talk about we'll talk with history professor Eric Foner about why lynchings rose in this country in the first place and why anti-lynching laws failed to pass in the past. Then We'll talk with law professor Leslie Scott about the significance of the signing of the Emmett Till Anti-Lynching Act. That's all next, after the news on Detroit Today. Welcome to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Jake Neer, sitting in for Stephen Henderson today. After more than a century of attempts, lynching is now a federal hate crime in this country. But before we get into the particulars of what this means for prosecutors and the broader story that it tells us about our country, we want to to get into a little history here. The stark rise of lynchings in America did not occur prior to the Civil War, as some might think, at least in the way that we think of it now. That rise occurred after that time period, and particularly after the end of Reconstruction into the early 20th century. Reconstruction is noteworthy because it was a time when America was beginning to try to live up to its highest ideals, making progress toward true equality and equal opportunity. Several amendments were passed, giving black men access to civil rights. The number of black businesses rose, educational attainment rose, and the amount of black male representatives immediately jumped in number. But after President Lincoln was assassinated, his vice president took off, and things took an ugly turn. This all leaves us with questions about why the rise of violent lynchings began in the first place, and why Reconstruction ended at all. To talk more about this, what led to the rise of lynchings in America, and why it took so long for an anti-lynching law to pass, we have Eric Foner here. He is the DeWitt Clinton Professor Emeritus of History at Columbia University, and he specializes in the Civil War and Reconstruction, Slavery, and 19th Century America. uh, Professor Foner, welcome to Detroit Today. Uh, It's very nice to talk to you. Yeah, it's great to have you here. Uh, This is a really... Uh, weighty and important topic today. And before we get into some of the, the meat of the history here, I want to talk first about the word lynching uh, and, and defining that. What do, we, what do we mean when we say lynching? Well, lynching is the sort of extra-legal murder of, uh, of a person, uh, usually by a mob, not just by one individual, often planned in advance, advertised in advance, uh, attracted large uh, crowds of spectators, mostly against African-American men, although there were instances of other types of people being lynched, mostly in the South, although there were lynchings in other parts of the country also. But for a century, we usually date lynching as starting around 1880, as you mentioned, after the end of Reconstruction, and, um, you know, there are various estimates, but probably three to 4,000 Americans were lynched, that is, killed by mobs uh, in, uh, you know, in, the, in, let's say, the period from 1880 up to the 1950s or even 60s. Uh, it's, a, it's a dark mark on our history, let's say, that, which is an understatement. And um, it really makes you wonder about how deep respect for law judicial process, et cetera, really goes in our culture. Mm. And and I want to get to that, again, that big rise in lynchings and where we think of that, that really beginning uh, in a second. But I also want to talk about Reconstruction. Uh, for those who don't know, you know, uh, what is Reconstruction <laughs> as we defined it, and, and when did it start and why? Well, in, in a simple answer, Reconstruction is two things at the same time. One, it's a period of American history, the period after the American Civil War. 
sort of like the age of Jackson or the New Deal, in other words, a particular time period, usually dated 1865 to 1876. Um, different historians date it in slightly different ways. But lynching, uh, sorry, Reconstruction is also a historical process, uh, the process by which the United States tried to come to terms with the results of the Civil War, the most important of which being the destruction of slavery in the United States. The issue of Reconstruction was what was going to be the status of the four million freed slaves? Were they going to have equal rights along with white people? Were they going to have the same civil rights, economic opportunities, political participation, etc.? Uh, as you mentioned, Reconstruction is a time period where tremendous gains were made in, uh, toward the ideal of equality in this country. But that very fact uh, sort of initiated or led to a, res a violent response by white supremacists in the South, often violent. But we don't really call that lynching because uh, it, it was, you know, it was political violence to sort of try to overturn these Reconstruction governments, which were established uh, on the basis of uh, interracial democracy and equality. Uh, Reconstruction was one of the very hopeful moments in American history when it seemed that we were trying to live up to the ideal of equality. Unfortunately, due to violent opposition and a retreat in the North from enforcement of equality, uh, Reconstruction ended and it was followed eventually by the Jim Crow system, which we, you know, talk about in the South. And lynching is really considered part of the Jim Crow structure in the South. It's sort of the violent edge of it. It's the way that people who tried to, um, you know, tried to combat the new system of, of white supremacy were often dealt with in uh, Southern life for decades and decades. Yeah. Uh, and, and this period, the Reconstruction, has been described in various different ways. Some scholars we've had on the show in the past have said it's a second founding for the nation. You've called right. it an unfulfilled revolution. I'm curious about that uh, description of it. You know, why, why, um, you know, why, why think about it in that way as sort of it's, it's, it's you know, not just yeah. it's not just a, a, a historical period. It is it is, again, this this sort of um, attempt to remake the entire country. Yeah, unfinished revolution is what I called it in mm -hmm. one of my books, which, fair enough. In other words, what I'm trying to say there is that many things were accomplished, but then a lot was taken away, and that the agenda of reconstruction of equality in numerous aspects of our uh, life uh, is still not been fulfilled, and that, you know, we're still debating the issues of reconstruction today, 150 years later. Who should be a citizen? Who should have the right to vote? What does equality mean? What about the possibilities of interracial cooperation? Um, you know, those are on our agenda today as they were during Reconstruction. Mm -hmm. And so that's why I call it unfinished. We're still trying to figure out how to deal with the end of slavery in this country. Wow. Yeah, that's that, that makes sense. I, I'm curious... Also, um, you know, about this, again, about the Jim Crow period, and in some ways what you're saying here is that Reconstruction, or at least the ideals and the, the uh, process, you could say, is continuing today. Jim Crow and the rise of lynching, the rise of the KKK, seems to, I think a lot of people think of that as a time when Reconstruction ends and it, 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 there's a finality to it and there's this, this birth of a really um, a racially regressive uh, uh, you know, nation, especially in, in, many, in, in large parts of the country, uh, but across the country as well. What spurred uh, especially lynchings and the KKK and things like that? Well, the KKK is really a phenomenon of Reconstruction. It's, as I said, it's sort of this political violence directed at taking away the political rights that African-Americans were granted after the Civil War. As you said, the Constitution was rewritten to give black men the right to vote. Equality before the law was written into the Constitution for the first time. You know, the, the concept of equality does not exist in the original Constitution. It had to be put in there in the 14th Amendment during uh, Reconstruction. Um, as I said, lynching is one part of this system that we call in a kind of quick way Jim Crow. With the, the system involved 
taking away the right to vote from black men, even though it's guaranteed in the Constitution, no longer in force, um, cutting back enormously on black education in the South, an economic system in which all the um, good jobs were reserved for white people and blacks were relegated to the lowest paying, lowest skilled jobs in the South, and racial segregation eventually, uh, where, you know, there's this whole two different worlds created in the South uh, uh, for black and white people. And lynching is sort of part of the enforcement of this system. Uh, it, it's, it's a way of saying, you know, don't think you're going to get uh, a, a, a fair trial in this in this region, or don't think you're going to get judicial process if you're accused of a crime. Mm. In fact, lynching is part of this degradation of the um, of the judicial system in the South, which also was reflected in the rise of the convict lease system, where thousands of black people would be hauled up in court for minor little offenses. They were found guilty, often they weren't and then put to jail and then leased out to work, almost in another form of slavery for uh, plantations and lumber yards and railroads and all that. Um, another form of unfree labor using the <clears throat> courts to send black people to, uh, to this kind of work. So, um, as I say, it's a comprehensive system. It's not just segregation, which we often associated with, but basically... The, the basic rights of black people put into the Constitution after the Civil War were just abrogated for a long, long period of time, from the 1890s all the way up to the Civil Rights era. And uh, the second, sometimes called the Second Reconstruction, the movement of the 1960s. So mm -hmm. lynching is part of an even bigger story, which is the uh, retreat from the enforcement of the Constitution for many, many decades in our country. You're listening to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Jake Neer, sitting in for Stephen Henderson today. I'm speaking with Eric Foner, who is a professor of history at Columbia University, specializing in the Civil War and Reconstruction, slavery in the 19th century uh, here in America. And we are talking about the end of Reconstruction and the rise of lynchings in America. Uh, now, in 2022, uh, many, many, many decades and uh, many, many years after the end of this period that we're talking about, we finally have an anti-lynching law on the books in America, but it took that long. We want to hear from you. What, do you, what does that make you feel about this country, the fact that we now do have an anti-lynching law uh, on the federal books? And what does it mean to you and how you think about being an American and being part of this country that it took this long for that to happen in the first place? Uh, what do you think needs to be done to usher in a more equitable America, and how can we best live up to our ideals of equality, equal justice, and equal opportunity? The number on the phones is 313-577-1019. Again, that's 313-577-1019. You can also leave your comments on Twitter. Just use the hashtag Detroit Today. We'll try to work you in that way as well. And uh, Professor Foner, I want to talk about, you know, again, we, we do, we, we've now seen progress in an actual, um, you know, we actually have an anti-lynching law here in America, but I want to talk about where that process began and why we've had so many um, blockades to that in the first place. Uh, talk about right. when people started talking about uh, anti-lynching legislation and, uh, and what happened to those attempts. Right. Well, first of all, during Reconstruction, laws were passed to try, by the Congress to try to um, protect the rights of black people and protect them from this kind of violence. They weren't called anti-lynching laws. They were civil rights laws. They were enforcement laws, that is to enforce the rights put into the Constitution in the 14th and 15th Amendments. Um, they were on the books. Later, the Supreme Court and, and uh, kind of abrogated most of those laws, took away mm. from the federal government. Because, you know, violent crime is mostly prosecuted at, in state courts in this country, right? If someone is murdered, that's a state offense, and the state government is supposed to prosecute you and punish you for committing that crime. But unfortunately, after Reconstruction, 
the South was in the control of white supremacists, and so people who murdered black people were often never put on trial, or if they were put on trial, they were quickly acquitted. You know, the most famous example going way into the 1950s, which was mentioned at the beginning here, was Emmett Till, the teenage boy who was murdered in Mississippi. Um, he was put on, the, the murderers were put on trial, uh, they, you know, for a, a state crime of murder, but they were quickly acquitted. It took the jury, all white jury, only a little while to say, no, forget it, basically. These mm. people are not guilty, even though they were obviously guilty. And later on, some of them actually said they had been guilty long later. But, um, you know, so the question is, what about a national law? Well, the problem is, as I say, the, um, the problem is the power of the South in Congress, and particularly the filibuster. To get a law through Congress with the filibuster required a two-thirds vote in the Senate to stop debate, you know, to stop people from just talking forever and preventing a vote. And many times anti-lynching laws were proposed. Uh, it was proposed, they were, you know, to make it a federal crime, a national crime, not just a state crime. Um, but they could never break the Southern filibuster. Southern representatives were all white after 1900 until way into the 20th century. Uh, they were all Democratic, and at that time the Democratic Party was the party of white supremacy. Today it's kind of, this has been shifted, and it's the Democrats supporting black rights, and Republicans often not particularly interested in that. Um, so you could not get an anti-lynching law passed the Senate filibuster. Over and over again, that happened. Uh, and so, you know, there were some people who said, well, look, this is, this is a violation of the rights of the states. The states are supposed to prosecute uh, violent murders. But, of course, the southern states, as I said, proved unwilling to do that. Now, there are other laws out there. There are civil rights laws, which make it a crime to conspire to deny someone their civil rights, etc. But simply making this kind of murder a federal crime has never happened until just the other day, as mm -hmm. you say. So it sure took a long time. Yeah, absolutely. And, and of course, as you mentioned, the filibuster, this has been obviously a political hot-button issue, uh, you know, in, in, for, for more than a year now. Uh, but I'm curious, uh, you know, I mean, this, this, that, that comes up a lot, is that, you know, the filibuster has been used time after time through history as uh, sort of a way to keep, the, keep racist laws or prevent anti-racist laws from going on the books. So this is a, this is a pretty timely discussion. Yeah, you know, in the debates now, uh, you know, you have uh, the people who support the filibuster in the Senate. The filibuster does not apply in the House. The House, a majority can cut off debate. It's in the Senate where it traditionally required two-thirds vote. Now it requires 60 votes, but the supermajority to cut off debate. Um, and yes, the filibuster historically in our country has been used for one purpose, and that is, as you said, to prevent laws which protect the rights of black people. Don't listen to those senators today who say, oh, the filibuster is really there to um, encourage cooperation between the parties, because if you need 60 votes, you're going to have to get both Democrats and Republicans, and therefore it creates a more cooperative setting in the uh, Senate. Uh, it hasn't worked that well. The Senate is not exactly functioning in a cooperative way right now, right? <laughs> right. Uh, but also, that's not what it has been used for in our history. It is a racist practice. It has always been used to prevent legislation to protect black people. That's why the filibuster was uh, is still in there. And um, But, of course, it makes our country look, how shall I put it, horrible, Mm. And also hypocritical. We, we stand for equality. We believe in justice. And yet for over a century or more, you know, we did nothing to stop this mass murder of black people that was taking part in the South. Thousands of people lynched uh, over the course of 1880 to 1950 or 60. Um, so, you know, mm. one has to look at that history and be embarrassed for 
the real, you know, course of events in over the course of history in our country. Yeah, horrified, absolutely. Uh, before I let you go, Professor Foner, I want to ask you, you know, um, I know that your specialization is history here, but I want to talk to you about, you know, what we're what we're talking about today, which is this anti-lynching law that President Biden just signed into law. I'm curious what you think uh, of this, uh, of the, the approach here and what it means for the country. Well, it's a good thing, obviously, that mm-hmm. now, now lynching basically doesn't exist anymore. You know, there are, of course, people are murdered here and there, but um, the, the phenomenon of lynching, which involved, as I said, large, often these lynchings were announced in advance. A guy mm-hmm. is in jail and the newspapers would start putting him, so-and-so is to be lynched tonight, six o'clock, come to the main town square. You'd think the police might go to stop it, but no, they often took part or just turned the other, you know, looked the other way. Um, Railroads sometimes put on special trains to bring hundreds or thousands of white people to watch these lynchings. And, you know, when I say murder, yes, but it was done in the most brutal, violent way, where people were tortured first before uh, being killed. They were burned alive. Their bodies were cut up. uh, Photographs were taken of these murdered people and sold on the streets and, you know, sent around the country. It was ghoulish. It was violent. And it really makes you wonder about the, you know, people brought their children to see the lynching of, of a person. What does that tell you about the moral standards of a region where this can happen and where nobody is ever prosecuted or convicted for taking part in these kinds of events. Right. So maybe the passage of this law will be a deterrent for, you know, against future examples of lynchings. Oh, that's it's such a horrifying thought. Uh, Professor Eric Foner, I mean, horrifying that it could it could happen again, I should say. Absolutely. Professor Eric Foner, professor of history at Columbia University, who specializes in the Civil War and Reconstruction, slavery and 19th century America. It was wonderful to have you on the show today. Thank you so much for joining. I won't say I'm happy to discuss this, (laughs) but I was glad to be on the show to talk to you about it. Absolutely. Thanks again for your time and and your, your great insights here. Coming up, coming up on Detroit Today, we'll continue a conversation about lynching and we'll talk about what this means in practical terms in 2022 in terms of this anti-lynching law and what it means in terms of bringing justice to Americans. Bringing you news that matters. Stories that impact your life. Music from the Motor City and around the world. This is 1019 WDET, Detroit's NPR station. You're listening to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Jake Neer, sitting in for Stephen Henderson today. The Emmett Till Anti-Lynching Act that many have yearned for has now passed. It's now law here in the United States. But that's after a century of stalls and blockades and well beyond the point at which lynchings are as common as they were in the early 1900s in this country. And that leaves us with deep questions. Why did a law protecting citizens against such heinous acts take so long to pass? What does the law actually do now for people in 2022, and does its passage signify any sort of progress towards social equality in America? And I want to welcome another voice to this conversation. I'm very excited to talk with Leslie Scott, who is an associate professor of law at the University of Detroit Mercy, who studies these issues. Uh, Leslie Scott, it's great to have you here on Detroit Today. Thank you so much, Jake. It is uh, so great to be here. Thank you for the invitation. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, So before we talk about the actual text of this bill, I want to take a listen to what President Joe Biden said about racism in in America uh, after he signed the anti-lynching bill into law. Racial hate isn't an old problem. It's a persistent problem, a persistent problem. And I know many of the civil rights leaders here know you heard me say it a hundred times. Hate never goes away. It only hides It hides under the rocks, given just a little bit of oxygen, 
and comes roaring back out, screaming. But what stops it is all of us, not a few, all of us have to stop it. Professor Scott, really powerful words there from the president, especially in the context of this. Um, you know, what what... What does this signify to you? What was your rea- your reaction when, um, you know, after, again, more than a century, uh, President Biden <laughs> right. was able to sign this into, into law? Right. I mean, very powerful words. And, and you know, President Biden is, is right. Hate, it, you know, it, it exists and it may not exist um, as blatantly as, um, you know, some of the forms that we think of when we think about lynching in the you know, the late 1800s and early to mid-1900s, the last um, speaker was talking about. But, um, you know, we can still feel those after effects of lynching. And, and we have some examples, right, that we could talk about mm-hmm. of modern-day lynching. So thinking, uh, of course, about Ahmed Aubrey in February right. of 2020 um, and and sort of that coming on the heels of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor and um, you know, before that, you had James Byrd Jr., who was murdered by three white supremacists in 1998. And so um, I, I would agree with those who say that this law is long overdue, right? And, and, it, and it took a long, um, too long, right, for, for this um, bill to be signed into law. But I have feelings of, of hope and optimism because, um, you know, better late than never, I guess, you know, as the right. saying goes. Um, but I think that what's really important about, about this, and maybe we'll talk about this a little bit more, um, later in the segment is that, you know, there are limits to what one, um, criminal law can do, right? Mm -hmm. So criminal laws come in and, um, there's sort of a way to try to bring some sort of closure or healing or peace to, uh, a crime or a social ill that's already been committed. And so by virtue of that, they're sort of coming in after the fact. No anti-lynching law can bring Ahmed Aubrey back, though, or, or those who whose lives were lost before him. Um, and so, you know, we hope for some sort of deterrent effect um, with a law like this, but expectations of deterrence tend to rely, I think, on a flawed understanding of criminal behavior. And so what are we left with? I think I think we're left with the hope that this historical moment will lead to uh, more conversations like the one that that we're having today, and perhaps even deeper conversations about the need for more than just a new criminal law to bring us closer to equality, the need for conversations about providing social services um, Mm -hmm. to victims of hate crimes and expanding compensation for victims of hate crimes, uh, requiring defendants to participate in educational programs and community service. I mean, the other thing that I think is worth noting is that the vast majority of hate crimes in this country are not going to be covered by this anti-lynching law. The vast majority of hate crimes, somewhere around 98 to 99 percent, are property type of crimes, vandalism, simple assault, um, threats that do not result in death or serious bodily injury. And so for crimes like that, we need to think about, um, you know, at at some point, these offenders are going to be back on the street. Mm. So what can we do in terms of education and community service to prevent this from happening um, in the future? And conversations really about critical race theory in the classroom and teaching the truth to our young people about the history of lynchings and, and other types of hate crimes in America. You know, as you know, that's a, another big, you were talking about the filibuster, <laughs> right, right, which right. is a, hot, a big hot button issue. This is another one, right? Yeah. There's, there's a lot of talk about uh, not teaching the truth about African-American history to young people, and I think that's problematic. And so this bill and this signing is really meaningful because it's, I, I hope at least, that it is prompting these kinds of conversations um, on the radio, but also in the classroom. Yeah, yeah, uh, I, that is uh, such an interesting point, uh, and and you know, uh, Professor Eric Foner of Columbia, before we um, ended that conversation at the beginning of the show, uh, was saying that you know he was talking about how 
lynchings in the definition that we often think of them where people are invited that it's an event that you know this is you know there are hundreds of people in the street watching this happen don't happen the way that they now the way that they do then and he he was saying that it's it's not you know that lynching in that sense doesn't exist i'm curious what this law does in terms of um you know distinguishing what might count as lynching versus other hate crimes or maybe even Mm -hmm. non-hate crimes. Um, You know, what are your thoughts about the way that we define this and the way that this law defines what lynching is? Sure. Yeah. So interestingly, the law itself does not specifically define lynching other than to say that a lynching is a conspiracy to commit a hate crime. But Mm. um, I think we all have sort of a general understanding of what a lynching is you know, as Professor Foner was explaining, you know, historically lynchings were these huge sort of mobs of, of people who, white people generally, um, who committed these extrajudicial and violent public acts of physical and psychological torture um, and, and killing of a person based on race. And oftentimes, you know, lynchings were um, done sort of with impunity or even implicitly or explicitly encouraged by law enforcement. You don't see that form today, of course, um, but you do see other forms. And and I will say, you know, if we think about the purpose behind the lynching, the purpose was to exercise uh, social control and and reinforce the racial hierarchies that existed in the eighteen and, and you know mid nineteen hundreds, early nineteen hundreds, and to reinforce segregation. And so there are sort of less overt ways of doing that today, including, um, you know, I don't need to go into the details, but everyone knows about Ahmed Aubrey. That's sort of the, mm-hmm. the most obvious example. So if we look at the text of this particular act and what it says, um, as I mentioned, it doesn't specifically define lynching other than to say it's a conspiracy to commit a hate crime. And so hate crimes are defined Um, in the original act, which is called the Shepard Bird Hate Crimes Act. That was federal legislation that was signed into law by President Obama in 2009. And it's named after two hate crime victims. James Bird was a black man who was killed by three white supremacists. So that would have been defined as a lynching. And um, Matthew Shepard was killed for being gay. And so... um, You have to look to the original act for the definition of a hate crime itself. Mm -hmm. Um, And it defines a hate crime as willfully causing bodily injury or death or attempting to do so with a dangerous weapon because of the um, victim's actual or perceived race, Mm -hmm. color, religion, national origin, and then extending, of course, to um, actual or perceived sexual orientation, gender or gender identity. Um, and so what the new lynching provision does is it criminalizes a conspiracy to do any of those things that I just mentioned, um, you know, causing, willfully causing death or bodily injury or attempting to do so. Um, and so um, you've, you've got to, I guess, think about what does that mean? What does it mean to conspire to commit mm-hmm a hate crime, um, the, the conspiracy also has to result in serious bodily injury or death um, under the law. So the law is relatively narrow in three ways. First, the federal government has to show that a person charged committed a hate crime, right, as defined in the original act. And that's not always easy to do, right, mm-hmm. because you have to show willfulness. Um, so intentionality, you also have to show a racial motive. Mm -hmm. Um, which is not always easy to do. Second, the victim must have died or sustained serious bodily injury in order for the new law to apply. uh, Serious bodily injury uh, includes substantial risk of death, unconsciousness, extreme pain, disfigurement, or loss or impairment of a bodily function or mental faculty. And then the last way in which the law is somewhat narrow is that the government, as I mentioned, has to prove a conspiracy to commit the hate crime. So a conspiracy is an agreement between two or more people to commit a crime. And so in this way, the act retains the significance of lynching um, as a group crime, right? Mm -hmm. Because, again, as, as Professor Foner said, 
we think about these big lynch mobs as sort of the definition of lynching, but a lynching really is just a group of people. It doesn't have to be a huge group, and it, ha- it doesn't have to be a public spectacle. Oftentimes it is, but, you know, in the case of Emmett Till, for example, I think we'd all agree that that was a lynching, um, a 14-year-old boy who was uh, killed by two white men for allegedly whistling at a white woman. Um, so that wasn't a huge public spectacle, right. um, but he was certainly brutally tortured and killed and then thrown into um, thrown into a lake. Mm-hmm. So um, the, uh, the last thing I'll say about the new law is, you know, on a practical level, the other thing that the new law appears to do is increase the 10-year maximum penalty for the solitary act of committing a hate crime that results in serious injury but not death to 30 years. Mm. So it was 10 years, but it, it's increased to 30 years as long as the hate crime involves two or more people. Yeah. Um, so again, it's the focus is really on group criminality, uh, which makes sense because that's what a lynching um, was understood to be and, and is understood to be. Sure. All right. Well, coming up, we are going to continue this conversation about this new anti-lynching law that is finally on the books after more than a century here in America and what it means in bringing justice to the system. We'll hear more from Leslie Scott, associate professor of law at the University of Detroit Mercy here on Detroit Today. And we're going to take more of your phone calls and comments on social media. You can call us at 313-577-1019. You can also leave your comments on Twitter using the hashtag Detroit Detroit Today. Detroit Today on 101.9 WDET. I'm Jake Neer in for Stephen Henderson. We're talking all hour about the new Emmett Till Anti-Lynching Act, which was just signed into law recently by President Joe Biden. Uh, What it does, what the practical implications are, how we define lynching in America, and sort of what it means here in 2022. Uh, And it's a timely conversation. We're talking about this on the anniversary of uh, Martin Luther King Jr.'s assassination coming up in June. We will be uh, coming up on the 40th anniversary of the murder of Vincent Chin here in Detroit, uh, which I think also is another thing to to think about as we're having conversations like these. Uh, and I'm talking with Leslie Scott, Associate Professor of Law at the University of Detroit Mercy. And we also want to hear from you. Of course, the number on the phones is 313-577-1019. Again, that's 313-577-1019. You can also leave your comments on Twitter using the hashtag Detroit Today. Big Neo on Twitter says, it took 100 years plus to get an anti-lynching law because of the way folks in power could always find a way to sidestep the issue by bills having too many things attached to them. If America starts to have single-issue bills to argue, time delays like this will not end. That's that's an interesting point there from Big Neo. I want to go to the phones and uh, take a, a friend of the show here, Alberta in Detroit. Alberta, welcome to Detroit Today. Thank you so very much for taking my call and for having this timely discussion today. Um, I want to indicate, first of all, that the repercussions from Reconstruction continue to be felt today. What my question is, what happened to the children of those who led those campaigns to slay black people? Mm. We're offspring. We're talking about they created white privilege. Is white privilege real? Yes. And this was the beginning of it. Mm. There are a few things I have to mention. Please allow me to. Absolutely. Number one, how can we create any sense of normalcy today? It would be difficult, but I think that we need to fund every existing black historical college to hire persons who can go throughout the country in black communities and recruit students starting in kindergarten for higher education. This program needs to be put on steroids. Hmm. It should also include nonprofits across the nation who service black people. I will say this. America will never reach its height of greatness until the real 
true, tangible actions are taken to make all blacks whole. Albert. And let me not forget reparations. Reparations mm. now. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Alberta, I, I so I so appreciate that perspective. It's always wonderful to hear from you on on the show. Thank you so much for that, uh, Professor Leslie Scott of U- University of Detroit Mercy. I'm, I'll give you a chance to uh, react to what Alberta is saying there, and also the you know uh, I think she gets to a really ex- important point about this. You know this this anti lynching law. Uh, I think you know it's 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 so clearly the right thing to do, but what are you know what what are what does it mean in this bigger picture of making real racial progress making sure that we are um as you mentioned uh, near the beginning of of uh, our conversation here there are so many other things that need to happen uh to to make a, a real true faith effort uh to really address these things right right that's a great point and i really appreciate alberta's comment and it's it's well taken you know because I think it it does sort of bring us full circle to back to the beginning of our conversation, which is that, you know, and and I'll just I'll say a little bit about my own background quickly here. I'm I'm a professor now, but before that, I was an assistant federal public defender. And Mm -hmm. so I represented people charged with crimes in federal court. This is a federal law. Um, And so with that background, I'm someone who generally advocates against the expansion of criminal prohibitions and penalties, certainly in other contexts, like in the drug, you know, the war on drugs context is the big one that I that I write about and talk about, um, because I just think that there's only so much that criminal prohibitions and extra penalties can do to cure these social ills that Alberta was mentioning in her comment. And so I think that the practical impact of adding a new criminal penalty for group torture is somewhat limited. Um, but I think the bigger impact is the sort of the symbolism. Um, you know, the fact that it took us 122 years to say as a society, lynching is a hate crime. So now what does that mean? We have the opportunity to um, reckon with this history and to decide as a nation, where do we want to go from here? And reparations is certainly certainly an important topic, and, and I agree with Alberta that that needs to be something that we continue to talk about and consider. Um, you know, conversations about, you know, the fact that so many hate crimes go unreported because the victims of hate crimes have, a you know, a healthy distrust of law enforcement that uh, roots from, you know, the history of lynching and the fact that law enforcement sanctioned lynching um, and was you know, law enforcement was often involved in lynching. Mm-hmm. George Floyd, Breonna Taylor. I mean, these are examples of the reason why black people have a distrust of law enforcement. And so, so many hate crimes go unreported for that reason. Yeah. So what can we do to, um, you know, to, to prevent that, you know, from funding, really money needs to go into training law enforcement and into social services, reparations, expanding compensation. As I mentioned before, Um, conversations about the role, if any, that restorative justice might play in the hate crimes context. And then, you know, Alberta said it best, young people need to know about this history. And so we need to be talking about race theory and lynchings and other really hard topics in the classroom from a fairly early age, I would say. Detroit1701 says on Twitter, at this point in time, it means nothing, referring to this new uh, Emmett Till anti-lynching law. <laughs> the sh- th- This should have been passed uh, 150 years ago, he says. I want to take a call who's uh, from someone who is saying something similar as well. Jerry in Detroit, welcome to Detroit Today. Hello to both of you today. Hi. What would you like to say? Hi. Um, I have a, a comment and also a question, um, if, if I may. Um, sure. Um you know, even though whether it's a hundred years or whether it's um, just in the last month or so, I think it's about time that something like this uh, need needed to be implemented because there there has to be accountability for many of these heinous crimes in a lot of these cases. And and my question to your guest is, and my question to your guest is, what do you think of the uh, the efforts by some, particularly uh, white racists on the on the right? to try and, you know, basically whitewash and revise history. You know, they're claiming that, um, you, you know the story about the so-called 1,300 white Republicans who were lynched 
and tr- to basically try to minimize and downplay mm-hmm. what African Americans during that time. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. and yeah, yeah, I, I hear that, Jerry. Thank you very much for for this point. Um, yeah, uh, uh, Leslie, I'll let you um, respond to what Jerry's sure. saying. Yeah, I mean, it's obviously very troubling to me, and I think that. You know, I, I agree with you. The first caller who said, you know, this need, this is empty, this means nothing at this point, I I can understand that sort of um, initial gut reaction. It, it does feel empty in some ways when it when it took this long, um, you know, and there's, there are still senators who, who didn't sign off on this. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, I, I tend to agree that better late than never, right? Mm-hmm. And so, if anything, this is allowing us to have these conversations, it's prompting these conversations. Um, you know, obviously it's deplorable when um, politicians and other people try to whitewash history and, and argue that, you know, certain things didn't happen that we all know did happen, um, you know, and, and, and to argue that victims of lynching were largely, you know, white people. I mean, it's just, it's just ludicrous. Mm-hmm. So, I, I mean, I, I think that you know, all all of those points can be fairly easily sort of researched and um, and proven to be false. But it's important that um, you know educators, in particular, are not afraid to have these conversations in the classroom, um, despite sort of the um, political um, you know the, the the political discourse, some of the negative political discourse around it. I, I do want to, if you don't mind, this is a little bit, a little bit off topic, but it sort of goes back to your um, the the first point that you made. The other caller who said, you know, this took so long, um, and it's you know obvious racism. I, I agree that you know racism has been an obstructing force when it comes to passing this law. Um, more recently, you had some objections in 20, I think it was in 2018 or 2019, um, from Senator Rand Paul about the language being too uh, broad and imprecise. But there have been some, I don't know if I want to say criticisms of the new law or critiques, maybe critique is the better word, that I think are worthy of, of talking about mm-hmm. that aren't necessarily rooted in racism. So um, one criticism that I've read, which actually comes more from the left, I think, than from the right, is that, um, and, and this is something, again, as a former public defender that I can sort of sympathize with, and it's the idea that adding yet another crime to the federal criminal code and a crime that includes conduct that's already criminalized elsewhere um, just contributes to this country's mass incarceration problem mm-hmm. without providing much in the way of deterrence. Um, and deterring future crime. And so as someone who writes and speaks out against mass incarceration of black and brown people and who has read the studies that pretty convincingly show that it's the certainty of punishment that that really serves as the best deterrent rather than uh, its severity, I can sort of understand that critique. Um, you know, and so I guess my response to that particular critique is twofold. First, um, I would say that mass incarceration is primarily a direct result of the war on drugs, right, which was launched back in the 70s, expanded into the 80s. Um, And so it was not, mass incarceration has not historically been a result of um, lynchings, punishment for lynchings or other forms of violent crime. Mm -hmm. And so it's my hope that this new law will be used relatively infrequently, of course, if at all. Maybe it won't have to be used Mm -hmm. um, the you know the vast majority of offenders currently incarcerated are there for nonviolent drug offenses, um, and so the other thing I'll say is that you know this country's harsh drug laws and policies had a disproportionate impact on people of color, and the anti-lynching law is meant to protect people of color. Mm-hmm. What'll be interesting is to see whether that happens. Right, we know that drug laws have been disproportionately enforced against black and brown people. And so I suppose the same could happen with this new hate crime law. That's something I want to think about a little bit more. Right. Um, there, there is at least some support for this concern um, that was recently discussed in a report by Stanford Law School's um, Law and Policy Lab, along with the Brennan Center for Justice. 
And so this report suggests that black people actually might be statistically overrepresented as offenders in mm-hmm. hate crime offender data. That's interesting. And so that, that, yeah, that's interesting. And obviously that's, that's a little bit troubling. Right. Um, <laughs> my other response is that, you know, this law has been fairly narrowly circumscribed in the ways that I discussed earlier. And so, you know, I think that the vast majority of people affected by an anti-lynching law will already be serving, um, you know, long sentences, right? right? They'll already be serving life sentences potentially. Yeah. And I'm, I'm sorry, uh, Professor Scott, I don't mean to cut you off. I only have 30 oh, seconds, okay. but I wanted to make sure oh, I no. got this last question in, which is, <laughs> okay. you know, we brought up some modern examples. Uh, of course, Ahmaud Arbery, you mentioned George Taylor, uh, uh, George Floyd, Breonna Taylor. Are there specific, uh, you know, modern day sort of cases that we might know about that you think could have been affected or gone that this law, this new law could have had something to, uh, you know, could have uh, changed anything about the outcomes? Uh, And again, I only have about 30 seconds. Oh, gosh, that's impossible to answer in 30 (laughs) seconds. Um, I don't know that it would change the outcome, right? It goes back to this idea of deterrence. And do we really believe that a new law um, that establishes a 30-year stat max as a deterrent. Mm-hmm. You know, we hope so. But the problem with that reasoning is that oftentimes offenders just simply don't consider the consequences of their action. You know, they're not thinking rationally sure. before they break the law. A lot of people are just not aware of the pen- of the potential penalties associated with their crimes. And lastly, they don't think they're going to get caught, mm-hmm. right? Nobody goes out and commits a crime thinking that they're going to be caught. So, you know, I don't know if this law would have prevented the Ahmed Aubrey's of the world, but it certainly uh, punishes the conduct in a way that fits the crime, right? It yeah. is a lynching. Let's call it a lynching. Let's not be afraid to do that. Um, but really, it goes back to the social services and expanding compensation, all the things we talked about yeah. earlier. I think those those types of things are what we need to to focus on in terms of prevention. Leslie Scott, uh, associate professor. I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry we're out of time. Leslie Scott. We talked so much longer about this, (laughs) but I really appreciate you having me on. Thank you so much for coming on. This is WDET-FM, Detroit's NPR station, your connection to news, music, and conversation. Thank you so much for listening.